right now I'd like to I'd like for us to return our attention to <coughs> these uh, this particular system of practice, the ten stages, and uh, talk about that a little bit more. We we talked about the uh, we talked quite a bit about the the details of and the various techniques that can be used in progressing through the second and third to the fourth stages yesterday. Uh, and it's, uh, it's very, it, it's a good thing that we spent a lot of time on those stages because they tend to take uh, the greatest amount of time in terms of your practice. Uh, the good news is that once you have uh, mastered those stages, then the, the stages that come after uh, prog- come progressively more and more quickly and, and easily. But I do want to talk about these other stages and hopefully give you as clear an understanding as uh, I can of uh, the road that lies ahead, so to speak, uh, after you have have uh, achieved uh, entry into the fourth stage and are practicing there. <clears throat> so the fourth stage, as we mentioned yesterday, there is uninterrupted continuity of awareness of the meditation object, but it is not always at the center of your attention. Sometimes it is displaced by other thoughts, uh, uh, other distractions, and uh, we use the labels we call distractions. That w- when the meditation object is the center of your attention, any other uh, any other awarenesses present are what we would call subtle distractions. But when one of those manages to displace the meditation object from the central focus, then we would designate that as a gross distraction. So we could say very simply that one of our major objectives in this stage is to learn to prevent subtle distractions from becoming gross distractions. Uh, Side by side with that is learning to recognize uh, strong dullness when it develops and training ourselves so that we bring the mind back to a state of mind of of as much fully mindful awareness as we can. Um, We can regard both of those, both dullness and gross distraction, as a form of scattering of the attention. Because uh, when the meditation object is at the central focus of our attention, we have a very clear awareness of it. When it slips into the background, it's much more diffuse. And so the effect of of these distractions by competing uh, for attention is to to scatter the attention to more places and therefore make it weaker or more scattered. But also dullness has the same effect. It weakens the power of our mindful awareness. And it also has a scattering effect that it's no longer, uh, our mindful awareness no longer has that pure concentrated power because it's now diffused into dullness. 
So the fourth stage is about reducing the scattering of, uh, of attention through either dullness or distraction. The main thing that we're cultivating in the practice that's allowing us to do that is introspective awareness. Because it is introspective awareness that it alerts us to the fact that, well, that a subtle distraction has become a gross distraction, but as we proceed, more importantly, it's introspective awareness that alerts us to the fact that uh, a subtle distraction is starting to become a gross distraction, even before it succeeds in displacing the meditation object. And of course, it's as we have more and more introspective awareness, then any time we sense that we're starting to lose our focus, we just sharpen up our awareness on the meditation object. The same thing with dullness. When introspective, introspective awareness alerts us to the fact that dullness is beginning to develop, then we can, if we catch it early enough, just just refocus our awareness on the meditation object and come come back out of that. Yes? So this is a question about doing things in the right order. Mm-hmm. And um, so if so I'm not in the fourth stage yet. Okay. And I'm wondering is should I try to do those things? Even though I'm not in the fourth stage yet, or should I just, hey, you know, yeah. that's that's next month. Yeah. You know, right now, just keep bringing the breath yeah. back. When you're in the third stage, you have longer periods of time when you're with the meditation object. And when you're with the meditation object, you're in a state that corresponds to the fourth stage. So when you're right. in a state that corresponds to the fourth stage, even if it only lasts for a minute, then you practice in that way. You try to arouse introspective awareness to alert you before a distraction causes forgetting or before uh, drowsiness arises. Darn. <laughs> Darn? Well, you know, now that's more work. So I start now. <laughs> it's, um, it's not work, Neil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not... Yes, it's just it's just being aware of what's going on, so that you don't have to go through that whole. Oh, I forgot the meditation object again. I guess I better go find it. See, it's just it's saving you trouble. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's, you know, there, and it's a good question because it it illustrates the continuity. I mean, we we impose this division and say. That's the third stage because we can't sustain our attention for the whole time. This is the fourth stage because we can. But there's really a continuity. It's just a question of how long we can sustain our attention. And then whether our attention, whether we're in a shorter period of sustained attention in the third stage or where the whole sit is sustained attention in the fourth stage, the work to be done is the same. It's if you realize that a subtle distraction has become a gross distraction, then you bring the focus back to the meditation object. Which, by the way, has the benefit that if you feel like you're spending an awful lot of time in the third stage, 
Well, remember, you're already doing most of the work that you'll have to do later. So that's one of the reasons that it keeps getting easier. Okay? Yes? Dullness. Um, maybe you can help me with a little bit. I've heard that Einstein, and there's a word for it, I can't think of it, could sit for two, three, four hours just staring, so to speak, as his peers would have said. And I doubt if he was dull. I doubt he was, too. <laughs> Uh, he would have been thinking in a very concentrated and focused way. Uh, he would have been uh, carrying on an analytic process. This is actually something that you may first become aware of in the fourth stage, and you'll definitely become aware of it uh, as, your, as you, your focus and your uh, mindful awareness improve through the subsequent stages, is that you acquire an incredible ability to think in a focused way. And you can apply that uh, formally in what is called analytical meditation, which is actually what Einstein was doing. Einstein would have some problem uh, that he was trying to find a a solution to. And so he was sitting down and, and using a very focused mind was carrying out uh, analytical processes in search of uh, answers to his questions. And uh, that is a skill that you acquire uh, at about the, it becomes really pronounced at about the fourth stage and then becomes much stronger as you progress. And you can do analytical meditations. You can sit down and say, okay, for the next half hour, I'm going to really try to understand uh, the, the five skandhas. You know, or you can take a particular text that is very meaningful to you and uh, uh, read it over, have it really clear on your mind. Uh, actually, the way the way they would normally have done this in the monasteries over the last uh, couple of thousand years would be to memorize the passage and then sit down and begin a process of analytical meditation intended to bring you to the clearest and most profound understanding you can of it. So discursive thought is a part of uh, single-pointed focused concentration. And you'll discover that incidentally along the way because you know how problems and concerns that you have in your life come up as distractions anyway? And you'll find that you can focus on them and actually come to effective solutions more readily than uh, you used to be able to. So there will come a temptation to do that in your meditation. So my caution would be always separate the two. You know, If a thought comes up as a distraction, has a lot of import, and it arrives ready to be worked on and resolved and a conclusion come to, you'll do your best to put that in your mental pocket and come back to it later and finish your meditation. And I'll tell you the reason why. It's an interesting thing if you're, if you're sitting there and meditating and you start thinking about something like that, you'll come to a wonderful solution and it will be really hard to go back to meditating. The other thing that will happen is if you interrupt your meditation to 
work through this thought talk process, that then what will happen is the next time you sit, some part of your mind will come up with another good thing for us to think about instead of watching the breath. You know? And this will start to become common. And the interesting thing about it is when you're sitting there meditating and the idea or the insight comes up, it's always, oh, wow, this is great. But then, if you reflect on it afterwards, you'll find sometimes it's really great and sometimes it's like, why did I waste my meditation sit thinking about that? You know, so, so it's best not to be fooled by that. Do your analytical meditation separately. Something comes up that's really worth, you know, it's like an insight comes in. Wow, now I know what the Buddha was talking about when he said that. And you really want to think it through. So what you do is you go ahead and you just firmly set the idea in your mind. Okay, this is the thought, this is the insight, and I am going to think this through. But not right now. I'm going to save it for after you know, after the bell rings. And then you can go ahead and, and, and do it then. But, yes, Einstein was not in dullness. And as, as dullness and scattering, as you develop mental stability, your ability to think becomes very wonderfully improved and increased. Uh, actually, there's a name for that. It's called the, the trap of insights. When, when you get to that sort of discursive clarity, then you have these sorts of insights that pop into your mind that are so tempting to dive into and think through discursively. And so that's called the trap of insights. Uh, it's, it's also associated with it. There's another trap that you can get caught in, uh, which is the trap of, uh, of mystical visions. <laughs> uh, you can... Uh, it's a very similar kind of thing, but um, it's... You start having visionary experiences, and I, I know uh, one woman who's actually a very good meditator, until uh, she started having, uh, she started getting messages, and then the messages would come with visions. And so then she started receiving visions that were the solutions to other people's problems. I thought it was interesting. It was never solutions to her own, but she was always able to give great advice to other people as a result of the, the visions uh, and the... Uh, uh, the thoughts that she channeled in her meditation. And so I didn't know this was happening to her until she told me that, well, for, for about the past year and a half, this is what all my meditation has been. And that's a really good example of getting trapped in visions and insights. It's, you do tap into the greater powers of your mind. And for some people, uh, for some people, what comes up can really be quite amazing and profound. And that's not to say that you shouldn't take advantage of that and make use of it. But remember where it came from, the practice that it came from. And there is so much more that awaits you. So it would be a shame to, to uh, do what this person did and spend a whole year and a half of your practice time uh, developing a habit. It was very hard for her to break the habit 
very hard. Once, once a habit like that gets established, she'd sit down and she'd start to meditate, and within a few minutes, some meaningful vision would appear, and it took a long time for her to to get over that. So, and uh, well, how did she eventually? Did was she able to just acknowledge it and return and not get involved? In that's the right. Just, conversation. Just that's right. Just acknowledge it, and it was sort of like going back to the beginning. It would. You know, these visions would just keep coming up as distractions and, and at first carrying her away and then, and then she'd have to keep coming back and then after a while she could catch them earlier. But it was it was a period of uh, I know it was at least at least two or three months of almost having to go through all the previous stages just dealing with this one thing. Okay, back to going through this, these things sequentially. Then, when you, when you have more or less mastered this fourth stage, uh, you'll no longer have the problem of subtle distractions becoming gross distractions. But there's still going to be quite a bit of stuff going on in your mind. A lot of thoughts in the background, chatter, memories, uh, the the uh, awareness of external uh, sounds and sensations, and the the little thoughts that are triggered by those, and it's still going on all in the background. And so, uh, it becomes really obvious that uh, the feeling that well, where I should be going in my meditation is to is to be able to exclude those and to focus in and have them disappear. But, and that is true, but there's something that you have to do first. And that's what the fifth stage is about. When, you, when you, your uh, abilities have developed to the stage that you've met, to, to this stage where you've mastered the fourth stage, what you're still going to be prone to is the gradual development of a subtle dullness. And the way that feels uh, is it's very pleasant. Uh, th- there's a pleasantness that comes later, but it's a more vibrant, energetic, joyful kind of, of pleasantness. But subtle dullness brings with it a real soft, warm, fuzzy, comfortable kind of pleasantness. Uh, the other thing is that that your meditation object loses its clarity and it begins to lose clarity more and more, but also the scope of your awareness focuses in. So that if you're not if you're not aware of this as a process that tends to happen, what experience you'll have is you'll say, My meditations are getting better and better. I sit down and uh, you know that uh, that uh, uh, PT, that rapture they talk about, you know, I think I'm starting to get it. It's really pleasant. And I'm getting very single-pointed. My mind just sort of focuses in on the meditation object and, there's, you know, all the thoughts just disappear. Uh, and my meditation passes so quickly, the bell rings and it's hard to believe it's been an hour. Yeah. But if you ask a few questions, you realize... There wasn't much conscious awareness in that hour. You know, it started off and then just very gradually crept to a, a, a 
fuzzier and fuzzier kind of level, you know, and and so the person passed this period of time in, in this state of dullness. And uh, oh, I've heard, you know, verbatim people say, ask, say, oh, that was a wonderful meditation. I don't know where I went, but man, I was gone. <laughs> you know, and it's, okay, that's, that's not what's supposed to happen. <laughs> At least it's not supposed to happen like that. So what the fifth stage is about is recognizing that loss of clarity. And you don't want to try to stop the thoughts and stop the awareness of external phenomena and stimuli too soon because they're part of what's keeping you alert. Instead, you just want to do, what you want to do is to recognize that as your mind becomes calm and settled and focused, there's going to be the tendency for this dullness to develop. And so you learn to become aware of it. And then you you bring yourself out of it. Now, there, in, in general, this is a way of uh, what you do in this practice. I won't go into the specific techniques that you can employ, but what you do is just the opposite. You employ several techniques that are designed basically to increase the acuity and the vividness and the intensity of your awareness in order to become more so that the tendency of your mind then, rather than slipping into dullness, is to, at the very least, stay where it is. But even more than that, you're trying to become more strongly, fully, vividly aware. So that's really what the fifth stage is about, is avoiding uh, the the innate natural tendency of the focused mind to begin gradually slipping into dullness and deceiving yourself that you're succeeding in developing a very single-pointed kind of uh, focused meditation. So when when you can sit and you rarely have to do anything to actively bring yourself back up when you when you know that you're staying fully alert uh, and, and the object is remaining clear and vivid and distinct throughout then is the time to begin basically focusing in your awareness collecting drawing together it's interesting that the word samadhi one of its derivations is to mean to to gather together so you start gathering together your awareness so that it becomes more focused rather than up to this time, you know, you've been maintaining a, a center, but you've been allowing everything else to be there. But you, you do become quite tired of the, of the constant chatter of your mind. And... Uh, the way that your mind keeps being perturbed every time somebody slams a door or coughs or honks a horn or something like that. And so you really have a strong inclination to go this way. It would be really nice if if I could just exclude that. And the sixth stage is, is about that. It's about sharpening up the, the scope of your awareness and taking control of it. And but it's not, uh, and, and okay, it's described in terms of exclusive focus, but it's not about progressively becoming more and more narrow. 
Because what you do is sometimes you become narrow and sometimes you become very broad. But it's about intentionally controlling, you know, the the scope of your awareness. So one of the practices that is used in that is to be aware of the sensations of the breath in the entire body. Actually, this practice is used in the fifth stage as well. But to be aware of the sensation of the breath in the entire body. And it's your entire body, yes, but you are excluding random thoughts and, and things like that by the simple act of trying to be aware of everything in your entire body. When you sit down with your eyes closed, what are the two strongest sources of distraction? Well, we already talked yesterday about the fact that your mind and mental objects. But the second one is your body, body sensations, right? So since these are the two strongest, then what we really are doing is we're taking the second strongest, we're we're using up all of our available capacity for conscious awareness on the second strongest so that it makes it a, a really effective way to ignore thoughts and mental objects. And what happens there is, you know, you can think of it this way, that all those parts of your mind that keep wanting to think about this or that, they're, uh, they want the attention to go to them. So you could picture them like they're, they're little kids that want attention, so they keep coming and trying to get attention. But if you ignore them long enough, they'll go off and do their own thing and stop bothering you. And that's what they do. So you can be aware of the sensations in your entire body for a while, and then you can bring the focus back down to the sensations around your nostrils, and you'll enjoy a period where uh, the thoughts, there's not any thoughts there, and there's you know, and you're just very, very focused, and it's it's quite nice. It'll begin to deteriorate, and then you can repeat the process. But thank you very much. Uh, what you are having the experience of then is is a mind that not only can direct and sustain the attention. You know, it's it's not just the pointing of the flashlight and the keeping it where it's pointed. But now you have control over the width of the beam. You can make it wide, you can make it narrow. This is great. Sometimes you want to investigate something very closely, so you put all of your power into a narrow focus. Other times, you're more interested in seeing how everything is related to everything else, or something is related to something else. So you expand your focus so that you can be aware of more at one time. So. The sixth stage, uh, you have the ability to rest in what can be described as uh, single-pointed concentration with uh, exclusive focus. But keep in mind that single-pointed does not mean small. It can be any size, a, a point of any size. Okay. But what's important about it is once once you've defined it, it tends to be relatively stable, and you can enjoy that stability. And so you practice, and, and the six stages comes about, and this is really wonderful, but, uh, and, and then you've entered the seventh stage when you succeed, and when you can do this consistently for long periods of time, we would say you're now in the seventh stage. 
But you realize that there's still something unsatisfying about that, which is that it requires constant vigilance. Wouldn't it be nice if your mind would just stay where you put it till you're ready to move it, instead of having to constantly be on guard and... Uh, if, if thoughts start to creep in and the distractions start to develop, of having to correct for that. Or if you realize that there's a tendency, a tendency for dullness starting to develop, that you have to correct for that. And that's what the seventh stage is about. It's basically through just continuing to be vigilant and making those corrections as necessary, at some point, a change takes place in your mind, and the vigilance is no longer necessary. The stability of your practice becomes effortless. <coughs> and that's really what defines the eighth stage, is now that you have effortless attentional stability, and you can sustain your mindful awareness effortlessly. Now, in terms of how this is traditionally described. And going from the sixth stage to the seventh stage and then to the eighth stage, this is spoken of as achieving first mental pliancy and then physical pliancy, of pacifying the mind followed by pacifying the senses. The pacification of the mind, that was the experience that we just talked about of being able to focus in the bodily, tactile realm well enough so that the part of your mind that kept producing all these distracting thoughts and memories and feelings withdrew into the background. You, you ignored it enough that it went away. And so this is what's described as pacification of the mind. But those processes are still going on somewhere beneath the surface or uh, outside of the, the sphere of your conscious awareness, or you might say subconsciously, all the thought processes are still there. And so if you let up your vigilance, vigilance they'll creep back into, into the sphere of your conscious awareness. So they'll, they'll begin to reinsert themselves and they'll go all the way to taking you on a little trip around the world if you don't do something about them. So we've pacified the mind entering the seventh stage in the sense that we've gained sufficient control over the, the uh, scope and the focus of our awareness that we can ignore these things and, and keep them keep them basically outside of our awareness. Then what, is, what happens then, so that's the mental pliancy, and then we begin working on physical pliancy. But uh, before the physical pliancy really becomes well-developed, before we succeed in pacifying the senses, there is another remarkable change going to take place. The mind now starts to become, you know, your herd of cats that has gradually becoming more and more well-behaved. Starts, it's like a Disney movie. They become a Disney cat dance troupe doing synchronized dancing. 
each stepping in time to the same music, so they're all going together. And so that's what makes it effortless. It's effortless because now you no longer have 16 other mental processes with their own agenda, basically their own idea of what we should be doing and thinking about and worrying about right now, trying to take over conscious awareness. Instead, all the different parts of your mind are starting to get on board with the same project. And when that occurs, it becomes very easy. Part of what, the, some parts of your mind that are being brought on board with this are those that normally process the tactile information of your body and the auditory information of sounds in the environment and so forth. And as they come on board, they start to ignore the sounds, and you might hear an inner sound. They start to ignore the ordinary body sensation, you know, the maybe the burning feeling where your ankle is in contact with the cushion you're sitting on, and maybe the, the achiness in this one hip that you've always had a problem with, and then maybe the tightness in your shoulders that always develops after you've been sitting for so long, you know, or whatever it happens to be. There's all this whole collection of uh, sensations that have been a part of your sitting experience up to now, and you've been kind of ignoring them and letting them be. And now they just disappear, and instead, the body just feels so nice and still and calm and pleasant. And so these changes are what are referred to as pacification of the senses, and when they become uh, fully developed, when uh, you've achieved a state of mental pliancy, that's accompanied by some very interesting phenomena. The body is not only still and comfortable, it's actually suffused by a feeling of pleasure. Usually this is preceded by a lot of other sensations. You'll feel a lot of energy, tingling, a little vibration under the skin, and things like that. But as it matures, it begins to become more of just a pervading, pleasant feeling in the body. And you can literally sit for hours. You, you are so comfortable and it's so pleasant that there is just absolutely, as a matter of fact, it gets difficult to move when it's time to end the meditation in the sense that, you know, it feels so good that the idea even just to move my finger and disturb this perfect serenity of the body is is almost a tragedy. So, so you know, you sit there, and you'll see people who have meditated for a long time. The bell rings, and they'll sit there, and it'll be a long time before they move. They just, you know, it's it's a shame to have to let go of this, but I guess I do. Okay. <laughs> it's very common for there to be some illumination behind your closed eyes that is a part of this. And as it develops, it might be flashes of light of different color. Uh, it might come and go. It might be floating orbs that get brighter and dimmer. Or sometimes it's just a light that comes from some uh, difficult to distinguish place. Sometimes it feels, you know, you're sitting there with eyes closed, and you become, you become more and more aware of an inner space. It's like when you close your eyes, you open yourself up to a kind of inner space, and that inner space starts to become suffused with light. So that can be a part of this pacification of the senses. 
there can be an auditory part to it where you'll hear uh, a ringing or buzzing or some people it's like music in the distance or uh, something like that but there is this distinctive kind of auditory thing that moves in and becomes a part of the experience. Uh, comparatively rarely you might have an experience of tasting a nectar in your mouth or having a, a smelling incense or flowers or something like that. It doesn't happen to very many people, but it does happen to some. Perhaps the most most wonderful thing that happens accompanying with this is that there arises a, a sense of, of joy, of joyfulness, of just very happy joyfulness. And it's kind of exciting. And it's at first, until you get used to it, it's very disturbing. So in the eighth stage, with the completion of this process of pacification of the senses, you'll have the arising of piti. And all these things I described here uh, come under the label of piti. Piti means basically joy. But the sense of joy is accompanied by the light and the sound and the bodily pleasure uh, and everything else. It all comes under the name piti. So you have, so you have piti developing in the eighth stage. And your meditations are a lot of fun then. It's really easy to sit have joy, have happiness, it feels good. And it's very exciting. And a lot of times what happens when people experience PT the first time, it comes on, there's this lovely rush of PT, and they're sitting there, and, oh, isn't this wonderful? And then the thought comes, I've got to go tell somebody about this. <laughs> And, and they do, and they'll, they'll stop meditating, and they'll, you know. <laughs> yeah. So the eighth stage is really a lot of, is letting this develop fully, and it comes to its full development there. Uh, the, these these latter stages tend to happen fairly quickly. So you go from the seventh stage once once you have that effortlessness, you probably will have already had maybe some flashes of light and some feelings of energy moving in your body and some tingling and things like that. But these things would have been coming and going. And they might have lasted a few minutes and then they were gone. Might have been a couple of them together, uh, but, but not all at once. In the eighth stage, they're all coming at once and they're lasting a long time. And they're, they become more and more easily accessed. Then... When you start to regularly have this full development of PT, uh, whether or not you have the lights, not everybody does. Whether or not you have the sound, not everybody does. But what everybody is going to have is a really comfortable, still, pleasant feeling that pervades their body and a kind of joyful happiness that is in their mind. So when that happens, when when that can arise fairly consistently, then you have completed the eighth stage. And the ninth stage is all about getting over the fascination with this. Uh, because, you know, it, 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 it varies in different people. 
uh, depending on how strong it is in you, if the joy is really strong and the pleasure is really strong, then this may be all you want you want to do is you just want to sit here and revel in this for as long as you can. So the ninth stage is about getting used to it. It's about getting, in a sense, it's about getting tired of it. The, the, the joy and the feelings in your body, and you still have a lot of energy in your body, and it's kind of disturbing. And so you do. You'll get tired of it after a while. And you'll sort of, you'll, you'll start wanting more of a peaceful, tranquil experience. And you'll get that. The intensity of the PT will subside. It won't disappear, but it will subside. And there will be a tranquility and an equanimity that develop in its place. And this is what marks the movement into the tenth and final stage, is where there is this, there's still the PT, there's still a pleasant feeling in the body, there's still a joy in the mind and a happiness in the mind. But now there is a, a strong component of tranquility and equanimity. Equanimity is non-reactivity that, you know, uh, pleasant things, that's really nice, but I can take it or leave it. Unpleasant things, that's too bad, but I can take it or leave it. That's, that's the feeling of it. It's, you're just really all right with whatever it is. And so that's what characterizes that tenth stage is, of course, you have the ability to concentrate that you've developed. You have the high level of mindful awareness that you've cultivated. You have the joy, you have the tranquility, and you have the equanimity. And so those in combination in the tenth stage are what we call samatha or shamatha, calm abiding, or shine in Tibetan. And I don't know what the corresponding term would be in Chinese. What's the Chinese word that corresponds to Shine and, and Samatha? Uh, there are quite a few, actually. Oh, okay. Transliterations such as Shi Mota. Shi Mota is a transliteration for, for Samatha. Shi Mota. Did I say that reasonably? Shi Mota? Shi Mota. Shi Mota. Sometimes it's simply translated as Chi. Chi. Right. I like that. It's easier. Chi. <laughs> <laughs> So that's where we're going. That's, that, that's, that's how the whole process unfolds. Now, I'll take you back a few steps and uh, tell you what, all, what some of the other possibilities are. That Let's go all the way back to the sixth stage where you can keep your meditation object at the center of your attention easily. There is still some discursive thought going on in the background, and you're still very aware of whatever noises are taking place. And if you do happen to have an ache or a pain or an itch somewhere, it's present there in your awareness. Everything is there, but you can keep really focused. And um, and your your uh, mindful awareness is strong. You know, you, that's how you got here. You just finished working your way through the fifth stage and you have strong mindful awareness. 
So this is this is what characterizes being in the sixth stage is that you can stay on your meditation object very, very steadily and your awareness is bright, but there's still a lot of other stuff in there, going on in there. So you can, at this stage, begin to enter into uh, a... And, and this is a very helpful thing to do. It's one of, one of the techniques that uh, I've discovered that you can use to uh, speed up your progress through the later, later stages is to enter into a kind of absorption. So if you take this whole body awareness, which is part of the practice in this stage, that you're aware of the entire body with you, as you breathe in and as you breathe out, and you will usually be able to start feeling sensations that, uh, that increase and decrease along with the cycle of the breath in even the very distant parts of your body. You'll be feeling you know, a, a sort of an expansion and contraction or maybe a movement of energy with each breath that takes. So you take that as your object and up till now there's been a real high priority on introspective awareness because if you released your introspective awareness those thoughts that were going on were going to creep in. What you do is you go into this full body awareness so that at least for the moment the thoughts are pushed off into the background and everything else is pushed off into the background. And you just saturate your awareness. You just completely fill your awareness with the body and you forget your mind. You let go of the introspective awareness. And you just absorb into this. And so that that is a kind of jhana. In this case, in the sixth stage, so, you know, discursive thought's still there. So you'll think to yourself, oh, well, I'm, I, I made it. I'm in the first jhana, or something to that effect. And after a while, you'll think, oh, I, I guess it's, I, I should do this, or I guess I should do that. You know, you'll have thoughts coming through. Discursive thought's not gone. But you really saturated your awareness, and what makes it a jhana is that you've, gone fully into that and you you've stopped dividing your you've given up the the bicamerality of I don't know if you know that word bicamerality you've given up the division of your conscious awareness in from between the object and the introspective awareness you've put it all together in just one total you you've filled all the available bandwidth with what's there in front of you. So there's nothing left over for anything else. And so that's that's your entry into jhana. You can do that from the from the sixth stage. When you get to the seventh stage where you are now capable capable of being single focused and the uh, discursive thought is no longer a part of it, you can sit there and you just very, very clearly see the sensations of the breath or perceive the sensations of the breath. The breath will be very fine and there will be virtually no thought. If a thought, the rare thought that comes through is, you know, it's just like a whisper in the background and your mind is really steady. So uh, at this stage, you can also enter into a jhana. The easiest jhanas to enter into this stage 
have to do with pleasant sensations in the body. So you can take a pleasant sensation in the body and take that as your object, and it will expand and grow, and it will become this this strong PT-like awareness that takes you into jhana. Of course, when you get to the eighth stage, uh, you're, you, you now have effortless concentration, and you also have the light and the sound. And there's a kind of there's a very well-known kind of meditation that's done by uh, some non-Buddhist groups. It's called light and sound meditation, which is basically a jhana practice where you now take the light and the sound as your meditation object. And uh, you the same thing. You let go of your introspective awareness and you absorb fully into this. You saturate your your mental bandwidth with with this and you enter into an absorption with light and sound. Um, and then when you get to the tenth stage, there's an even deeper absorption that you can enter into. So you see, there are a, a variety of things that you can do along the way. Now, practicing these absorptions actually helps you to move through the subsequent stages of the samatha development more quickly. And this is a fairly recent and wonderful discovery of mine. Uh, I mean, I, I, it's new to me. I didn't invent it. Actually, uh, uh, it's been around for a while, and I learned it from a meditation teacher named Lee Brasington, uh, that you could enter these jhanas before you actually achieved samatha, these lighter jhanas, and that if you did, then, then you would really accelerate your progress through these other stages. Something else I want to tell you about, though, that you can do. When you have reached, when you've mastered the seventh stage, and you reach the eighth stage where, where mindfulness, mindful awareness and uh, concentration are effortless, you no longer need to stay with one object. Once, you're, once, once it's effortless, you can, you can use this mind in a variety of different ways. You can direct your attention to different objects, and each object it rests on, it has that same stability and power of mindful awareness that it would have if you had just stayed with your original meditation object. So you can move it from here to here to here. And you can exercise that when you're doing walking meditation, when you're doing sitting meditation. In sitting meditation, what's really wonderful about it is you can deliberately watch the unfolding of your own mental processes. You can open yourself up to allowing thoughts and allowing awareness of sounds to come in. And then watch what your mind does when there's a sound. You can watch the way your mind generates a perception. You can watch how the sound may produce one feeling of, uh, oh, I like that, or uh, it's pleasant, or it's unpleasant, and then the association, that the perception that comes afterwards may produce a completely different kind of feeling of pleasantness or unpleasantness. You can, you can see that uh, you can, I say see, it's really more like feel, you can feel your mind react with desire and aversion to the sensations in your body. There's a lot of really pleasant sensation when you reach this stage. 
And so you can take it and you can, you can see that as you direct your attention towards a pleasant sensation in your body, how your mind almost lunges forward to want to take that. Um, another thing that you can do because you no longer need to stay on one object is that um, you can just open your mind up and follow any object that happens to present itself any sensation, any thought you can rest your attention on that until it you know, disappears and it'll arise and it'll disappear and this is a method that's often used in uh, vipass- certain kinds of vipassana practices. Uh, and, to, and, and when you get to this stage in your concentration, then you can just sit there and watch things arise and pass away. And your concentration won't be lost. It's, it stays, it's effortlessly stable. So you can sit there and watch one thing after another arise and pass away, arise and pass away, arise and pass away. But what I think is the best thing of all that you can do when you reach this, uh, this eighth stage and you have this mind that is, as the Buddha described it, malleable and wieldy. You know, and to me, malleable means that you can bend something to serve your purposes, and certainly this is a mind that is malleable in that sense. And wieldy, you know, we talked about how you can move your attention freely. It's wieldy, it's, it's mobile, it's movable. But the best thing that I think that you can do with this malleable and wieldy mind is to not have any object. Let go of all objects and enter into a state of very expansive, open awareness. And then you let whatever experiences arise just pass through your awareness without your mind contracting around them or latching onto them or following them. You just stay open. And it's more like whatever happens, it's more like it just passes, it enters your awareness and it passes through your awareness and it passes out of your awareness without the mind contracting around it or without the mind chasing after it. This, this I think, is one of the most powerful practices of all. And it goes by the name of Mahamudra. So once you reach the eighth stage, there are all kinds of things you can do. One option you have that's very desirable is to continue the progressive development through the tenth stage to Samatha. But from the time that you've achieved this mental and physical pliancy, this effortlessness of mindful awareness and concentration, just about any of the most sophisticated and esoteric meditation practices you've ever heard become available to you. And you can you can then embrace them. Um, and I gave you the terms mental and physical pliancy uh, and effortlessness, which for a long time, those were the terms in which those were the terms in which I learned to describe this condition and this state. And then, about a year ago, somebody wrote a book and they introduced me to a word 
that I don't know why I never thought of it, or nobody else ever thought of it. Well, actually, I think they did think of it a long, long time ago. A word that described this transformation perfectly. It's unification. Unification of the mind. That describes what happens that allows this whole thing to be effortless. That allows you to exercise this malleable and wieldy mind in so many different ways. Uh, and if you compare that with the way we described our minds starting out as being all these different parts with their own agendas trying to go in different directions and we started out herding cats, that's what I mean. We get to this point and now we have our Disney movie. All, all the cats are moving in step and time to the music and they'll do anything we want. We're the director, whoever we is. <laughs> but assuming that we sat down with a meditation, uh, with a specific way of meditating in mind, all the cats dance in tune, and, and we can do all these wonderful practices. So that's the progression. That's where it goes. I'll mention one more thing, a very special thing, when you reach the tenth stage, is that you start to really lose uh, that sort of distinction between when you're doing sitting meditation and when you're getting up and going back into the world. In the tenth stage, in Samatha, when the bell rings and when you get up, the your mind doesn't immediately start to uh, fragment into all these, segment into all these different kinds of mental activities. And you don't start to lose that clarity right away. And even the joy and the tranquility and the equanimity that you feel stay. And so uh, when you, if you sit down and practice for an hour or two in a, in a samatha state, and then when you get up, you can continue your practice with all of these uh, these faculties fully present. With, with all of the, these are five of the seven factors of enlightenment. Uh, uh, if you didn't recognize them when I mentioned them, that you have uh, stability of attention or concentration, you have uh, mindful awareness, you have joy and you have uh, tranquility and you have equanimity. That's five of the seven factors of enlightenment. The other two are investigation and a word that we could translate as, as energy, but I like enthusiasm as a good one. So investigation and enthusiasm. So if you get up from your seat, you can practice, uh, you can practice with all seven factors of enlightenment present as you're going about your daily life. Of course, you'll gradually, you know, as you get more and more involved in the world, you'll start to lose the focus, you'll start to lose the power of your mindfulness, you'll start to lose the joy and the tranquility and equanimity. But you lose them slowly. And very often, if, you, if you're sitting regularly, you go back to sit, and they'll come back again very quickly. You just, you know, it's sort of like you recharge, and then you have this to carry with you. So, with that description, how could you resist buying my car? (laughs) 
Questions? Yes. Yes, I have a question. Regarding to you, you mentioned that get to the A stage yeah. and you can uh, focus all the uh, attention to different types of subjects, yeah. okay, object. Then, um, and you also mentioned that you can uh, see that uh, racing and passing and, and mm -hmm. all the sensation that including the thoughts. Mm -hmm. Okay. My question is that for the A stage, for all the way, it seems like A stage is really can have a thought come. Like, That's right. Yeah. But however, during the practice, I do come, come to the certain point and I, I watch the, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the thoughts, even including the thoughts come and the, the racing and right. passing. Is that time is back to no. that? Because if, if through the systematic come to that point, it seems like a real have thoughts, but, mm -hmm. but, but during the really set do have thoughts. So I don't know what's that kind of conclusion. Okay, well, the, uh, yes, the, the conclusion is, you see, when, when, we, when we have a mind, parts of which are trying to do their own thing, and one part of which is trying to do its own thing, it's not one, several parts of which are engaged with different kinds of uh, uh, discursive thought processes, worries about this and that and so forth. When they're doing their own thing, then they are something that is acting to uh, scatter our awareness and disturb it. When we come to the state of unification of mind, you can relax and you can let the thoughts happen. And that's what you're doing. And that's what some of the other meditators, you know, the, in the retreats, and they talk about uh, experiencing the arising of uh, desire and aversion and things like that. Um, you, you can go ahead and allow, you can open yourself up to physical sensations, to thought processes and things like that because you don't lose your focus, you don't lose your awareness. And that's exactly what you're describing. You go ahead and you let the thoughts come, right? Mm -hmm. You could focus in on your breath and the thoughts would go away, right? Yeah. Yeah. But you don't because you've already done that. You already focused in on your breath. And so you and and so once you once you've focused in and once your mind is really stable and clear, then you're deliberately allowing those thoughts, and that's exactly what you're supposed to do. Uh, that's they are not they are not on their own agenda of, of trying to to take over, but rather you've allowed them because you now uh, you now are in a position to be able to observe them, investigate them, see where they come from, understand how they might be rooted in desire and aversion and uh, uh, ignorance to see uh, uh, what kind of what kind of reaction the mind has to uh, to different objects that arise in it. So then it becomes then it becomes an insight practice. Yeah, that's what Then when we talk about like a you know practice, because every day is different. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and even though each day, morning, afternoon is so different, but but we talk about quote unquote raining day. Okay, yeah. thoughts keep coming out, coming right. out, coming yeah. out, and uh, 
is that in, in that thought keeping coming up? It is, even though I, I feel feel like it, I still have a stillness there, mm -hmm. but because the sound come out so 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 much, okay. Yeah. So is that stage is back to the, well, so the earlier? Yeah. Somewhat, but that's good because you have enough. You have enough collectedness of the rest of your mindful awareness that uh, that you can you can still keep your center and you can still keep uh, uh, an appropriate level of awareness even when even when you're starting to deal with a flood of thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess maybe my question is that. If the thoughts come out to you and watch that, mm -hmm. perfectly understand. But yeah. if the thoughts, you know, just happen, come out so many, mm -hmm. okay. At that time, is I, is confusion is that should I kind of okay bring back, bring back this kind of earlier stage, mm -hmm. or just keeping watching that, watching uh, that. Okay, you know, what to do with that? Yeah, okay. and and, mm -hmm. and, and the, just keeping watching, rising and passing, rising and passing. Or, or, or say, okay, you know, focus. Okay. All right. What we're talking about here is this is, this is a very, uh, a very useful practice. Uh, this is, you, you are in a state of samatha or near samatha, and you're really practicing insight from, with the samatha as a basis. And you, you have a lot of versatility. So, as uh, Deborah is saying here, you have the experience that that a lot of thoughts are coming, but you still have the stability to be able to watch and investigate. And just just examine, just mindfully look and see what's happening. And that is what you want to do. But what you'll find, of course, is that sometimes the the uh, your mind will start to become more and more active and agitated. Thoughts trigger emotions, and so now you don't you ha just have a stream of thoughts. You have thoughts and feelings associated at the same time. When it starts to come apart for you, when you start to lose your focus, and it gets harder to just be in a place of observing the thoughts, observing the the reactions, observing the emotions, then you can reestablish the samatha. You can come back, bring your focus back up. And then once you once you've brought your focus back up, then you can go ahead and and uh, just open yourself up to to uh, these things that are wanting to come. Because what you the whole point of having a mind with this degree of, of focus and clarity is to be able to examine the mind and examine experience the way it really happens. And uh, you know, no matter how good your samatha is, you can go out and get into a situation that it triggers strong emotions, and your attention is diverted in several different directions at once, and all of a sudden it's all gone, and you're just an ordinary person in ordinary com consciousness, uh, being overwhelmed by thoughts and emotional reactions, and uh, your mind being divided over several tasks at once, but. The, the point is that you have the skills now that you can bring yourself out of that. You can start bringing mindfulness to bear on this situation. 
you can start bringing focus in and so that you can slow down the process and and you can you can on the one hand you can deal with it in the sense that you're not so prone to speak and act uh, out of the emotions that are arising as you start to reestablish your mindfulness uh, then you you have restraint but also you're in a position to observe and understand when you're in this real life situation and the emotions that are due to your past conditioning are coming up and the behaviors that you're used to be you're used to responding with are you know you 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 feel those parts of your mind starting to formulate those words or make those facial expressions or you know start to move towards those actions um, you also have an awareness that you know uh, uh, is telling you that uh, whether this is appropriate or not in terms of uh, of its origins uh, is this something that's coming out of desire or aversion and is this is this unwholesome uh, and what are going to be the consequences of allowing these thoughts and emotions to determine, compulsively determine your behavior. So you have the opportunity to see that. Uh, even, and you have the possibility of restraint, even if the restraint doesn't occur, the fact that you're mindfully aware while the emotion compels you to say the words or perform the action, it's going to it's going to have a very profound effect on your your understanding at a very deep level, and it's going to modify your future reactions in the future, because here you have watched your body mind complex go through one of its things where this and that happened and it pushed your buttons and the emotions came and with full mindfulness you've watched this whole thing happen and the 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 illumination of that conscious awareness through the mindfulness is is informing the very parts of your mind that give rise to these particular emotional reactions and conditioning them in a new way because it is being seen as it's being seen if it's being seen as an unwholesome activity then that becomes a far part of the future conditioning of the parts of the mind that give rise to those emotions when mindfulness wasn't present they just went through their whole thing and then afterwards you said oh no why did i do that when mindfulness is present then you're creating you know I, Karma is the word for conditioning in this sense. So what you're doing, your reaction in a situation is due to your past conditioning, your past karma. The information that comes from your mindful awareness creates a new kind of karma. And the cumulative effect of the new conditioning is to bring about both uh, knowledge, wisdom, understanding, 
aha, I see what happens, I see how it happens. I mean, you, 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 by watching this, you could reflect on it and say, wow, talk about dependent origination. Now I've really seen exactly how that works. Boy, it would just happen to me. But the other thing, too, is you've also modified your behavior. You're not going to react in the same way to the same degree in the future. So we're always working on this kind of spectrum of real life with the brain, the body, the mind reacting the way they're conditioned to. The other end of the spectrum is is we're sitting in meditation and we have roused the full power of the training of our mind and mindful awareness and concentration. And now we're able to move some of that some of, some of what's at that end to over here towards this opposite end where we're just acting and reacting and, and the, the cycle of dependent and orig, origination is just you know cranking it away at a thousand RPMs and now we're bringing the power of mindfulness and, and uh, attentional stability to bear on that process. And so yeah, you'll find yourself sitting in meditation and things are coming up. But the converse of that is you'll find yourself out in the world and doing stuff, and the mindfulness will be there. <laughs>